Well, it's wonderful to be together again, looking into God's word. Let's ask God to really open our hearts and minds to what he wants us to hear this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that you use your word in our lives, that it's living in that way, that it, it brings to light things we need to understand about you and about ourselves, that leads us in the right way. May we, by your spirit, be open to what you want to share and open to what you want to say to us this morning. May you be glorified. We look to you in faith, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, it's, been, it's a real privilege, I've got to say. Thank you very much for the opportunity of uh, serving this church and serving the Lord by doing that and to be involved in the uh, ministry here. And uh, we look forward to really getting to know everyone a bit um, in the near future, hopefully. Uh, we would love to get and connect with a lot of people uh, that we uh, will meet eventually. You know, I'm sure that many of you will be thinking, who is this guy, Keith? Um, I mean, one of two of you know us well, my wife and I, and others may have heard what others have told them about us. And some of you have met us, a handful have met us personally or met me. And uh, yet most of the church here, uh, I was just a name uh, that was brought to you. And now uh, that name um, is beginning to mean more to you because you see the name Keith Glasgow is just really, uh, it represents who I am. And the more you get to know me, the more you, un you attach to the name. Uh, that's leading into what I want to share this morning. And, and no doubt you'll be making sort of judgments. You know, who's this guy, Keith Glasgow? We, let's listen to him. Let's watch him uh, and so on. Uh, by the way, don't talk to Marg about who I am. <laughs> anyway, my name is, it represents who I am. And it's the same with any name. Uh, the first time you heard the name uh, Scott Morrison, uh, I mean, that probably meant nothing to you. But now you attach to that name a whole lot of information that you've gathered about him and that name represents who he really is. And so it is with the Lord Jesus. Uh, his name represents who he is. And uh, it talks in the New Testament, especially here in John's Gospel, about the name of Jesus quite distinctly. For instance, in John chapter 1, verse 12, uh, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And um, in chapter 2, verse 23, many believed in his name. And so the name of Jesus represents all that he's revealed to be. And in the process of people, first of all, hearing about this person, Jesus, who was from Galilee, down the backwaters there, that, that, that uh, who is this person, suddenly baptized and brought into the limelight by John the Baptist and then uh, then he starts doing these miracles, turning water into wine, healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and all that he did. And so people's uh, understanding of this name, Jesus, it, 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 the added information as they watched and listened to his teaching, they attached to his name more and more 
uh, so that they came to a place where they had to decide, make a judgment, if you like, who is this man? And that's my message this morning. Who is he? Uh, the people observed and they listened and formed their own um, opinions. Um, and in the middle of this chapter, we find Jesus saying, do not judge by appearances, make right judgment. It's right that you assess me, he said. You look at me and you come to a decision, but do, don't do it by outward appearance. Do it with right judgment. And so there, are, there were differing opinions, uh, as is very clearly brought out in this chapter, of ones who, who saw something about Jesus that was good and others who uh, were really confused and not sure and then others who were totally against him, that being the, uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So we ourselves are the same. We have to come to a decision about who Jesus is and to look honestly at what he says and what he does and come to believe in his name. Because those who believe in his name, in who he is and what he came to do, uh, are the ones who receive eternal life. Now, as we look at this in this chapter, we, we see, first of all, a need to see the context. The context, six months prior to this event that occurred at the Feast of Tabernacles here in chapter 7, uh, was what happened in chapter 6, the, the feast of the Passover and the feeding of the 5,000. It took six months before then we come to chapter 7. And uh, the, the, there's another six months after this before the final trial and execution, the crucifixion of Jesus. So this is where it's strategically placed. The Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast, the feast of Booths is what the context is. And so we have... Uh, in the Bible, there are three feasts that the Jews had to uh, observe in, and, and go up to Jerusalem. They were called pilgrim feasts or pilgrimage feasts, where, where huge crowds moved from all over the country up to Jerusalem to celebrate those three feasts. And this is one of them, the Feast of Tabernacles. So in chapter 7, it's all about it. And you have uh, the, the tradition was and still is that there are eight days to this feast. Uh, the first and the eighth day were Shabbats or if you like, Sabbaths of rest. And then in the middle, there was a lot of celebration. Um, and it celebrated the wilderness journey and then coming through that into the promised land. And so it was a time of reflection back to the time in the wilderness and a looking forward to the coming kingdom of God. It was a celebration that was marked by a lot of rejoicing and singing and dancing. Uh, it was a, a, that kind of feast. Um, and there were two sacred rituals that were attached to this feast um, based on two happenings during the, uh, the 40 years of wilderness journey that the Israelites went through that the feast of tabernacles is all about. And the first one was the water from the rock. When Moses struck the rock and it, there in the desert, the people were, were so thirsty. Uh, they were parched. It was desert. And there was this huge multitude of a million or more people who needed water. 
And God, through Moses, allowed fresh spring water to, to come out of a rock to the people so they could drink and quench their thirst. That was the first event that was celebrated. Uh, and the second event uh, or happening that was celebrated during this feast was that there was a, a pillar of, of fire, like a light, that accompanied them and stationed itself just over the tabernacle. And then when God wanted them to move on, that pillar uh, at night and the cloud by day would move and the, and the Israelites would then gather up all their tents and belongings and the animals and they would move with the pillar of light and with the uh, a cloud as it uh, was representing God's presence among them and leading them through those 40 years. And those two uh, happenings of the wilderness journey were celebrated in this Feast of Tabernacles. The water from the rock was celebrated by every day during the, the festival. The priests would go down with golden pitchers uh, down from the temple uh, all the way down the hill, very steep hill, down to the Pool of Siloam, which was actually a spring uh, of fresh water. And I've been there with Marg myself, and, and it's very down, very low, and the, the temple is way up high. So it's a long, steep walk. And they would come down in a bit of a procession, and the people would follow, and there would be uh, uh, the ceremonial uh, procession down to get water from that spring. Uh, and then go all the way back up to the temple and pour out that water on the, at the foot at the, of the rocks at the bottom of the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. There were trumpet blasts and then the people would shout and they would shout um, Isaiah 12 verse 3. With joy will you draw waters from the wells of salvation. And it was followed by great rejoicing. In fact, the rabbis used to say, he who has not seen the rejoicing at the pouring out of the water has not seen rejoicing in all his life. Uh, so it was well known to be a time of great rejoicing. Water out of the rock and the water from the spring um, representing that. And then there was the pillar of fire and, and uh, the water from the rock and the uh, procession uh, was about God's provision in the desert of water for the thirsty people. And then the, the fire, which was light, uh, was a, uh, a symbol of God's presence because what happened was the, um, uh, the, the priests would organise for huge big lampstands to go up around the temple compound and uh, each one of these had four uh, uh, golden bowls that were filled with oil and they were all set on light, a light during this uh, celebration, this feast. And so the whole of the temple was a light. They didn't have electricity back then, of course. So, and it was quite amazing. And the light actually, they say, would light up the whole of Jerusalem of that time. Uh, it was so bright. And it was a celebration of, of God's presence among his people during the wilderness journey. And it's interesting that uh, this chapter says that, shows that the true fulfillment of 
the uh, two uh, happenings in the, um, in the desert with the people of Israel going on that, through that desert journey, that the, the water from the rock and the light uh, from the fire, pillar of fire, those two and the whole uh, Feast of Tabernacles was fulfilled in Christ. He said, if you are thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And in chapter 8, which is a continuation of this, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Showing himself to be the fulfillment of what is pictured and, and is really symbolic in the Old Testament. So then, uh, not only as we look at the context, uh, do we have the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, but we also have the expectations of Jesus' own half-brothers. Half-brothers because Jesus had no earthly father, uh, but they all lived in the one family with uh, Joseph and Mary. And in verse 5, we read that these uh, brothers, half-brothers of Jesus, who were actually Simon, James, who, used, who became actually the leader of the church in Jerusalem, we find in Acts, and uh, wrote a book in the New Testament. And then there was Joseph, named after Joseph, and Judas. And he wrote the letter of Jude in the New Testament as well. So all these uh, brothers, uh, they, it says, did not believe. Now that's strange because it goes on to say in, in the verse that um, they uh, believed he had miraculous power. He says, they said to him, Jesus, if, if you're the Messiah, they didn't actually use those words, but the implication is there. If you're the Messiah, why don't you go up to Jerusalem, do your works up there? Uh, that will be then proof that you are who you claim to be and, and, and uh, the world will turn to you and, and you'll have success. And the reason it says they didn't believe was because they didn't believe in who Jesus really was. Believe in his name, that he is the son of God. They were looking for a political savior. They were looking uh, that Messiah would be king in a political <clears throat> way. And if that was true, if, if, if um, Jesus was to be a political Messiah, then the advice they gave was really good. Yes, this is the feast that you have to go to to present yourself because uh, everyone's rejoicing and looking forward to the kingdom of God. And if the king appears and does his miracles and does what you do uh, and says what you say, well, then uh, you'll be made king and uh, it's all sweet. But Jesus said, the world hates me. That's an unusual response, isn't it? Because their deeds are evil, he said. And what he was really saying is actually an echo from chapter 3, which we read that talking about Jesus coming into the world, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. He was saying that, that uh, being a political leader and ruler won't change people's hearts. He came to deal with the real issue first. He says, my time has not yet come yet. There is a time when I'm going to be the political ruler of the whole world, and he will be. We look forward to that in the future. But right now, he's coming not to rule in a political way, 
but to deal with the problem, the evil, the sinfulness of the world and go to the cross of Calvary and suffer there for us. Then the second thing we look at in this chapter uh, is the conflicting views that, that, that among the people and the uh, Pharisees and leaders, uh, there were conflicting views as they observed Jesus, as they listened to him. First of all, the people's confusion. We see his character was an issue. In verse 12, some said he was a good man or is a good man. Others said, but he's leading people astray. Well, if he isn't the son of God and he said what he said and did what he did, he would be leading his people astray. He claimed to be the son of God. And if he wasn't, then he was either deceitful or deceived himself. As uh, C.S. Lewis famously wrote, he's either a liar or a lunatic, or his Lord. There's no other option. He was either a deceiver, or deceived himself, or he is the Son of God. So his character was um, a cause for confusion. Secondly, his scholarship was a cause for confusion. How is it? that this man has so much learning and yet he hasn't been to rabbinical school. He's not studied. There were 30 schools uh, for rabbis to train in uh, in Israel, mainly around Jerusalem. 30 schools for rabbis to learn in. And he hasn't attended any. Remember when Jesus was young, a boy, and went with his parents to Jerusalem for a feast and he got into talking with the religious leaders and the scribes at that time, and he, conf he confounded them because of his knowledge of the truth. And now, many years later, here he is again. And the people are saying, we don't understand. And look at his disciples. They're just fishermen and blue-collar workers. Uh, they're nobodies. And he comes from Galilee. The origin of his knowledge, Jesus said, is not from a rabbinical school. It's from his Father in heaven. He said, my teaching is not mine. Then he says something in verse 17, which is one of the most important verses in this whole context. And that is that if anyone's will, Jesus said, is to do his will, his Father's will, he will know of the teaching that it is from him. And that is, he, that Jesus is not speaking on his own authority, that, that this is the truth. In other words, God has set it up so that when a person isn't genuine in their seeking of Christ, they won't understand the source of the teaching and they won't believe. And Jesus said similar things in other passages in the Gospels. So if anyone's will, if your will, if my will is to do his will, to have an honest seeking heart, then you won't miss out. 
He will lead you to the truth. He will lead you to Jesus, the Son of God. God looks at the heart and he reveals himself to those who are genuine in their seeking of the truth. And, and by the way, the untruths taught by the rabbinical schools were um, often in Jesus' um, teaching. And here he says in verse 19, Moses gave you the law, yet none of you keep it. You're trying to kill me. Uh, I haven't done anything to, to cause you to want to kill me, but you're doing it anyway, showing that you're breaking the law anyway. In your heart, you want to kill me. The next area that the, uh, the people's confusion was uh, related to was his origin, the Lord Jesus' uh, origin. That In verse 24, we know where this man comes from, speaking of Jesus, but when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And, and, and later it says about Jesus coming from Galilee. And does anything good come out of Galilee? That backwater place of uh, people who have no significance. Tradition uh, um, and the people of that day was that Jesus, uh, that the Messiah would suddenly appear. In fact, Satan uh, tempted Jesus with this very same thing and said, you know, why don't you throw yourself off the temple uh, and, and uh, God will save you and, and you'll be able to Proved to the world that you're the Messiah. Um, they believe that Jesus, because it says in Malachi 3, the Lord will, whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And they took that verse and they applied it that Jesus, uh, the Messiah, whoever he would be when he comes, would suddenly appear in the temple and no one would know what his origin is. Except they knew that he was an offspring of David and that he came from Bethlehem. And of course, they actually bring that up here in verse 43. But the Messiah, um, he's the offspring of David. Look at Jesus, he's from Galilee. They didn't realise, as the Gospels show, uh, that they would have found out later, but that Jesus was of the offspring of David. And because of the Roman census, they went to Bethlehem where he was born. So, uh, they were not aware of that. And so the confusion caused by the, the knowledge that this man, Jesus, came from Galilee, not aware uh, of the truth. And Jesus' response to them was, um, I came from God. And that, of course, wanted, caused them to want to arrest him and kill him even more. And lastly, the Mental state caused confusion. They're thinking about his mental state. They said, you have a demon. And uh, the crowd thought he was crazy, or some of them did, uh, because of what he said. His response was, do not judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. Investigate. Seek out the truth. There's two kinds of doubt. There's good doubt and bad doubt. Now, when you, um, I don't know who you are listening to me or watching me today, but I know that I have had doubts as I've journeyed the Christian pathway. At the age of 20, I gave my life back to the Lord after living 
um, away from him for a number of years. And it wasn't soon after that that I was immediately confronted with the question, why does God allow all this suffering in the world? It's terrible. And God is a God of love. And it, and it caused huge doubts for me. And now I read C.S. Lewis's book, The Purpose and Pain, um, A Problem of Pain. And I, I went through all sorts of things. I talked with different ones. And finally, that doubt resulted in me actually writing a little booklet called Purpose in Pain because I came to realize uh, there's good arguments there, but the doubt was good doubt. It actually led me to investigate, to seek it out and to find. And that's what Jesus is saying. Judge with right judgment. Look into it. Um, good doubt seeks for answers. It seeks for the truth. Faith is not the absence of doubt. If you doubt, it doesn't mean you don't have faith, but the means to overcome it. I had my first shot this week, and um, I'm halfway to being vaccinated. And a vaccine is a safe form of the infectious disease that's injected into your body, and your body's immune system then creates antibodies to fight off the real disease if you come in contact with it. It's like good doubt. And I've got a quote here that I'd like to give you from Timothy Keller. He says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy and indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do, find themselves defenseless. But in the midst of all this confusion of people uh, wondering who this Jesus is, the Bible says here that in verse 31, many believe. They said, when Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this man is doing? And the officers who were sent by the scribes and Pharisees and, and who went to arrest Jesus they came back without him and said, no one spoke, has spoken like this man. So there were some amidst the confusion who believed. And thirdly, in this chapter, we have the call to believe. On the last day of the feast, we read, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And he said this, uh, it goes on, gives a commentary that this was talking about the Pentecost day when the Spirit of God was given to the church and indwelt God's people from that point on. So after the priests had poured the water on the base of the altar, the people would shout, as I've already said, in Isaiah 12:3, with joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. Then this was followed with great rejoicing. Um, and the, the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the whole of the Jewish people, the rabbis, believed that uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would be when Messiah comes, and that this pouring of the water was symbolic of that pouring out of the Holy Spirit uh, in the end days when Messiah comes. And so it's very significant that Jesus says, 
If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So in the hush and the silence, as the priest poured out the water, that was the only time there was no noise. Everyone was silent as the priest poured that water on the altar. And as soon as that was done, the trumpet blasts and the people would shout for joy and they would sing and dance and uh, there would be great noise. But in the quietness of that time, when the priest poured out the water, Jesus stood up and it says he shouted with a loud voice. He cried out. It was like the cry of the word is used for a raven. Uh, like I'm, I'm working in the backyard of our place and we have neighbours who, who feed the cockatoos. <clears throat> the cockies, uh, they're a pain and they eat mugs, plants in her garden. She doesn't like them very much. Anyway, I'm working away and this bird, I didn't hear it, but until it's right above my head and it goes, bah, bah, screeches and I just about die of heart attack. It's so loud. And, and it reminds me of this word that's used here in the Greek, that, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. It was a call for the people to come to the fulfillment of what the type was in the Old Testament and what the symbolic actions of that, uh, that uh, Feast of Tabernacles were, that he was the source of life, that he was the one who would give water for the thirsty soul. And, and religion won't do it. It will never satisfy that thirst. Uh, all the rituals in the world and all the reading of, of the Old Testament law and the New Testament for that matter, no matter what you do, you cannot fill that thirst and, and quench that thirst. Only Jesus can do that when you receive him. And he goes on to say that. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. By the way, it says anyone. doesn't matter who it is. doesn't matter what your sinful past might be or no matter how high you are in society or low, how um, <clears throat> uh, knowledgeable you are in God's word or not. It's irrelevant. Anyone, it says, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink, those who believe. So he explains what drinking is. If you drink of me, it's those who believe. They receive the eternal life. And that life is meant to flow out to others so that uh, you are not a reservoir of the life of God, which when you receive him, he comes and lives by his spirit in your life. But you're meant, it's meant to be that you're a, a, a conduit so that that life then affects others' lives and is a witness as well as an encouragement to God's people around us. Out of his innermost being will flow a river of living water. Have you drunk of the water of life? Have you? The people in the wilderness, when the rock was struck and the water flowed out, 
they went for it and they drank and they satisfied their thirst. That water was no good to them in the stream. It had to be received. And Jesus Christ is the water of life, but unless you receive him, unless you personally invite him to come into your life by his spirit, turn from your sin and trust him who died for you and rose again to give you life. Unless you do that, you will remain thirsty, not just now, but for eternity. What happened when Jesus spoke about that man that died and went to Hades or hell? He was thirsty. It wasn't a physical thirst. It wasn't physical. He was there in spirit. He was thirsty and remained thirsty for eternity. Couldn't think of anything worse. The last invitation of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 talks about the water of life. Let the one who is thirsty come and drink. Have you done that? I encourage you to do that. And if you're not sure how, contact the church. Contact me. I'm very happy to talk with you, pray with you. So are others here. God bless you all.